0: Hey, speaking of race listeners, Joe here. Today on the podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. We're super excited to bring you an interview that we got to do recently with Gene Demby, who is the co-host of NPR's podcast, Code Switch, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. The podcast deals broadly with issues of race and identity and ethnicity in the United States. And recently, Gene and his co-host Shireen Marisol Meraji traveled to Birmingham to record a live episode. While they were there, we got to meet them and then follow up with an interview via Skype about what it's like to be at the forefront of discussions in the United States right now about race and identity. So that's what you'll be hearing today. We apologize in advance for the sound quality, which isn't wonderful, but nevertheless, we hope you'll enjoy it. We were really, really honored and excited to be able to interview Gene. Um, So, so Jean, you know, we're really excited to have you on the show for all kinds of reasons. But one of them is that you and the Code Switch team have in a large way been at the forefront of lots of public discussions about race and identity in the U.S. for the past several years. And going back even farther with some of your earlier projects, you've been doing this for a long time. We'd like to know more about sort of how you came to doing this, starting with the blog and post-Bougie and now... With Code Switch and, and what it's been like. What have been sort of the main victories and challenges?
1: I think for, I'm going to speak, i of turn to speak for Shireen, my co host, a little bit. Um, but Shireen and I, I think, are both people who like are naturally obsessed with these questions about identity and where you belong. Um, Shireen, if you listen to the podcast, you've heard her say this a million times. She's uh, half uh, Persian, half uh, Puerto Rican. She's always had this sort of sense of, of two-ness that she's been trying to navigate in her life and she grew up in Oakland or she grew up in the Bay and she hung out with lots lots of like black folks and lots of Latinx people and so like her cultural references are all sort of jumbled and so she's always felt this sort of sense of like a placelessness you know and so like and she joked about this at the live show in Birmingham but she's sort of just like oh I guess this is going to be my life's work then I might as well get paid to sort of interrogate this (laughs) stuff because true for me too since college I've been sort of obsessed with these questions of race and identity and power and, and the way we talk to each other the way we engage with each other um and after college a couple years after college uh, i started a blog called post bougie which is just like us and sort of ruminating out loud a bunch of my friends were also writers started doing it we had a podcast uh i did that on the side very pseudonymously when i was working at the new york times matt thompson who is now the executive editor at the atlantic but he was at npr at the time he, uh, he and I met at a black journalist convention, and he mentioned, like, hey, we're doing this project about race. I don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be sort of like planet money, but for race, who knows what? what. <laughs> That's um, a great description. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, and he was like, if you would be interested in throwing your hat in the ring. And at the time, it was a much more novel idea. Like, I think one of the things that happened as the Obama administration went on was that more and more newsrooms, I think, started realizing that, that they were going to have to talk about race I mean, you know, we have business desks, we have sports desks, we have, you know, arts desks, and the thing about race is that it intersects with all that stuff. It intersects with national news, foreign news, and it, it's not easily by partitioned off from any of those subjects, right? You know, there, I think there was a, a real push from a lot of new, not, a lot of newsrooms to start thinking about race as like a coverage area um, mm-hmm. with people who have expertise, with people who like um, report on it full-time. Right. I think, and I think Coastwatch was one of the first teams like dedicated to that. Uh, at like a big major legacy mainstream news outlet um and so shireen and i were among like a couple thousand applicants for for the positions here and so coach has been around for what like guess like six years now um oh. and we've been a blog for a little over two i mean I'm, sorry we've been a podcast a little over two so before then we were sort of reporting um mostly for the radio and for the coach blog i think that there's a different kind of urgency now like there was an urgency during the Obama administration for a bunch of reasons, right? Like people were talking about police violence and and I think Obama sort of, just his presence in in the sort of national discussion catalyzed a lot of those conversations. Honestly, it's, it's worth thinking out loud about whether or not, those conversations would have played out had he not been the president of the United States, right? Um, And now we're having a a completely different series of conversations around whiteness, right? And about white grievance, but about the way whiteness perpetuates itself. And Obama, because he was at the center of the national discussion, I think underlined for a lot of people that they were raced, like a white people who might not have thought of themselves as raced people before. And now I think the Trump administration is like, what happens when that is activated for a lot of people? um, And it becomes politicized. It becomes much more explicitly poli- like part of our political discussions, and so it's been interesting to feel like that trajectory over the last few years, because so much of what we pay attention to has had to change accordingly. You know, before we were talking about immigration, and we were talking about and thinking about like what it meant to be a person like like Shereen, like living between these different worlds. But now, those things have a different kind of urgency, because now, I mean, we're talking about you know people having their citizenship stripped from them, and these are questions that that now like. I think everyone has to deal with, right? Because now everyone is implicated in them in a, in, a, in a much more direct way in terms of how they vote and who they support. And so I think the conversations about race in America, before we to be like, oh, these are things that happen to brown people. Race is the thing that happens to brown people. And I think now everyone is having to deal with sort of the implications of the way they think about their
2: politics. Mm-hmm you've talked in your blog and even in code switch about ferguson being sort of a big changing point in the way that you thought about issues of identity and race in the united states are there other big moments for you personally or for npr as a media organization that you think changed the focus of what people were talking about and how they were talking about it mm. i mean ferguson was a big
1: one for i think for npr but also for media organization in general right because i think uh, it was the first time that I think people. I'm gonna say the first time, right? Because the Rodney King key yeah, 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 25 sure. years ago. Um, sort of catalyzed a lot of discussion around police brutality. But Ferguson, like, it started to show just how mundane so much of this stuff is. Ferguson was just like a, Shereen and I were there during the during the uprisings. You know, Shireen went to the white side of town, which is crazy, because Ferguson is not a big town. I've never ever, ever been there. Like, it's not a very big place, but there's it's big enough to have, because it's America, it's big enough to have a white side of town and a black side of town. And when she talked to the folks on the white side of town, they were very much like, things are great, like, you know what I mean? The police are wonderful, like, um, nice. and then when I was on the black side of town, everyone was like, bro, let me tell you about this shit. That <laughs> <laughs> um, And we look at the numbers, we look at the the state had numbers on what arrests and police stops is like in Ferguson. 85% of the people who were being stopped the year before Michael Brown's shooting, 85% of the people who were stopped by police were black. And so, like, hmm. white people were literally not having any contact with the police. Yeah. And then we found out, sort of not long after that, that people, that, that Ferguson's, like, city government, I think it was the city courts were actually funding themselves with the fines that they were assessing to the black folks they were stopping. So there was like this was like a way to tax people was just to stop them. But of course the you're the, the you know, the people who tax you don't usually have guns, right? So there's this whole thing that was like layered on top of what looks like just um, sort of mundane mistreatment. Like I think people started to be able to like piece together the ways that that kind of policing is incentivized, and it became really obvious for people to see, right? You having tanks on the street was like, well, wait a second, why does this small town have tanks, right? I mean, like, why does that? Why do they have tanks? Why can they call in people with tanks? Like, why is all this happening for a town of 30,000 people? Like, why is yeah. that a thing that can exist? And I think Ferguson. I think it was important for so many news organizations, not just NPR, but so many news organizations, because like they, we suddenly people had to start thinking about the way policing looked for everybody. Ferguson so Elf, unfortunately started became very politically polarizing. Yeah, so yeah. there was a way in which covering race and and race and policing became a horse race story, right? It became a story about you know like BLM became a, like sort of a shorthand for all sorts of things. That, um, that the candidates would try to embrace, or push against. Uh, some of the politicians had to be asked questions about the militarization of police and racial brutality, or whatever. And so that became it became easier for newsrooms to sort of think about it as race not some sort of like you know it's just like sociological theory, right? And it's like it made it a lot more like quotidian and mundane. And you know there were like really arresting images. I think I think Ferguson honestly is the big thing over the last couple of years besides Trump. Um, that that sort of like uh, activated uh, a fascination among news organizations around race and covering race. Um,
0: What about uh, sort of reactions that you've had? Um, Have there been any that have been particularly surprising? Um, Either interviews that you've done with people or reactions you've gotten from listeners? um, Any moments that have been sort of like, whoa, that have taken you off guard? The thing is,
1: I think, been really fascinating um has been what makes people what like really gets on people's skin and makes them respond it's never like the Ferguson stuff makes people like quiet and like hmm. and and people say like i I have to think about this stuff the stuff that gets people really animated is the stuff that implicates them like in a way that's not even necessarily like about structure but about like family right The, the episodes that we've gotten the most letters about have been we called it a racial imposter syndrome that episode for a month later we were getting people like i i feel some type of way about this episode for XML. Oh, there okay. was a bunch of people the episode basically was about this idea that you that you feel like you don't belong to the group or that you feel some sort of um, alienation from a group that you often put in either because you're a multi like a, a biracial a multiracial person mm-hmm. or because maybe you're a transracial adoptee um or maybe you didn't grow up around people Maybe you're, like, a, a Latinx person who didn't grow up around the Latinx people, and so you don't speak Spanish, and so you don't feel, like, uh, necessarily, like, the most, like, sort of social proximity to that group, but you want to, and then, but you feel every one of the slights that comes from, like, uh, from not belonging very, very acutely. The episode made so many people so mad. Um, it also, like, was interesting, because it gave people sort of a language, like, a vocabulary to talk about those feelings. Like, people start saying racial imposter and I feel this all the time. But a lot of people on the other side that like these that their communities were like willing to embrace people who in, in a lot of cases like you have stories of transnational about these right you have people who were like raised by white parents and so like internalized all these weird ideas about you know brown people from their white parents who didn't talk to them about race they have brown kids by white parents who didn't like talk to mm-hmm. them about race and so they have like this sort of like you know just like uninterrogated like anti-blackness or anti-latinxness right mm-hmm. um and so they're like a lot of the sort of that stuff was like floating in the response to was like, you know, like there's a wide range of ways to be Latinx or black. The basic thing is that you have to like respectability of being a Latinx and black. Right. Um, and so there was all this sort of like stuff in there. There was another episode. It was like, it was like an advice episode. And one of the, uh, uh, one of the people who yes, asked as an expert was suggesting that, in interracial relationships in which there was a big wealth disparity, like between a white partner who had both means and a, and a person of color who did not, that that was a thing that should be like talked about. And like, and maybe the white partner should pay more that, I mean, that like, in, mm. like our Twitter mentions were like, just, just a, a, like a wow. wasteland for like a week. Huh. Um, I can't believe you're saying that my boyfriend needs to pay me reparations. I love him. And it was like, ah, to her. it was, it was really messy. And I think, we were divided on our team about that, right? We like, argued about it, like, amongst ourselves um, about, like, what the sort of, like, the validity of these arguments. And we do that all the time, by the way. Like, we argue all the time. But that was, like, one of the things. Like, I think the thing that's always been true is, like, when you talk about race and policing, people are like, yeah, racist policing is bad, right? Like, there's a way to, like, look at this. It's abstract or whatever. Yeah. It's abstract, right? Um, or you can say, like, uh, you know, these people have power. They can, like, end your life. And so, you know, this is urgent and also is not but it's also like doesn't implicate me necessarily I'm not a cop right like, not directly right but these other questions about how you make your family and like who you decide to like be friends with like those questions are like much more we just got an email the other day from this woman she's a white woman who's a teacher she taught in inner city um, she really wanted to raise her daughter who I think was I think five to be a better ally to people of color but her daughter did not go to the school in the inner city. Her daughter went to the school in the suburbs in a mostly white school. Hmm. And she was saying that her daughter, she was really excited because her daughter came home one day and was like, oh, I can speak Spanish. She was raising her daughter to be bilingual. I spoke Spanish with the teacher and, and then the, the letter writer found out that it wasn't actually a teacher, it was the custodian because that was the only brown person uh, in school that her daughter went to. Okay. And she was like, well, I want to talk to my daughter about raising, how to be a better ally. How do I do that? And, I, and I, so I emailed her back, but she sent this long email. I'm like, so why do you send your, your kids to an all-white school? Like, why, why do you do that? And then immediately it was like, well, I'm not going to apologize for giving my kid the best and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, that's yeah. exactly what, like, what we're always sort of like, yeah. have, like, you know, it's like, oh, and she was like, look, my daughter's school is, 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 is a, it's safe. It has good test scores. And like, this is what I want for my daughter. And I don't apologize for that. I just think everyone should have that. And, you know, it's not, like, this is not like, this is not supporting that. sources or anything like that. Or maybe it is, but that's not the point. And I was just like, ah, like that is it's those things that seem to get the, the sort of most intense reactions because they implicate us, right? They implicate the choices we make. It's easy to say like, hey, that person from Montana that you interviewed was scared of Muslims overrunning their town is a bad person. It's much harder to say like these decisions I, that are convenient for me to make, like uphold this structure of white supremacy on and making decisions that would not, further these things would be like actually logistically difficult not just like emotionally difficult right but like logistically difficult you'd have to pick up your family and move to a place like you know like all these things would have happened like so baked in into stuff and I think just the, the hard stuff is the stuff that is like up close and personal and, and and about the way we navigate this stuff like in the way
2: we raise our kids and the way we like who we marry yeah. When you know that you're going to be yeah. on, an, on an issue that's going to touch a nerve with listeners, are you more likely to go after those topics or, or do you shy back or does it matter that you're part of a national news organization? Does it set parameters on how much you can go into a painful area with people or what's your tendency in those times?
1: I mean, I like to think that we think that we're like pushing on the edge of stuff. But candidly, I do think that like there are all these ways in which like there are things we're trying to like hold together at the same time, right? There's, we're talking about the interracial um, reparations uh, thing, right? Interracial marriage reparations. One of the things that like became clear from the pushback from that was like a big chunk of our audience. This is the course which, not just like to be informed, hopefully, but a lot of them have been listening to be affirmed, to have their experiences affirmed. When we sort of argue about stuff, there's a way in which people feel like take it really personally, um, that we are negating their experiences or or, 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 or casting judgment on them. Or particularly people of color, right? Who are like, I don't feel this way about this thing and I live in this place in the same space. And that's been really hard because I think it's both incumbent upon us as journalists to be like, we need to have dissenting voices, right? Um, or just like uncomfortable conversations with people and not just Mm -hmm. conversations that are comfortable for white people but conversations that are comfortable for brown people that's and that's and that's hard for a bunch of reasons right like we had this guy on who was like the son of a confederate veteran right he was part of the sons of confederate veterans they were Mm -hmm. arguing about you know keeping the statues up in in virginia it's hard because like the journalists you know so one on one hand is like we have to talk to this person if we're doing a story about the people who are fighting to keep these statues up on the other hand it's like is this person mendacious? Are, they, are we even, like, are having a conversation with them in good faith? What is the, like, to the many people of color in our audience, like, are we just going to piss them off for no reason to, like, talk to that person? Because it's going to be, like, five minutes of pseudo-history and pseudo-science. What is the upside of us talking to that person, right? And I think that it's, it's been tricky to navigate. Because we have, like, a, our audience, so just for context, our audience is, I think, like, 35 to 40% people of color, I think, last check, uh, last check. I think a lot of people assume that it's mostly brown, but it's not. But it also makes us way browner than the rest of NPR. Like the scene sure. is, all things considered, in morning edition, their audience is like ninety percent white or something like that. And I think it's really hard to sort of hold all these things together because, like, what our brown listeners often want is like an affirmation of the stuff that they're thinking about, like the, like the society that is gaslighting them all the time, um, that this is not like something they're making up. And what our white listeners want is like someone to like teach them. You know what I mean? And right. I think those things are really like often in conflict. We've been kicking over this idea about doing an episode just on prison abolition for, like, four weeks. We've been sort of, like, figuring out what that would look like. Leah, Danella, and I are both in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the first place to have a penitentiary in America. It was also, like, founded by Quakers, who were also the first, like, anti-penitentiary, anti uh-huh. um, it's happening in our hometown. And we are like, we should just go home and talk to the people who were, like, the stories about this and sort of, like, game out. Like, what would it look like in a world without prisons? Because that became an issue in one of our episodes in which Mark Lamont Hill was like, we shouldn't have prisons. And we were like, wait, well, wait, wait, wait. Um, it was really complicated because, like, this was a critique from like the, the left, right? That was like, you guys are being way too amenable to ideas around incarceration, and blah, blah blah. It was weird because we were trying to think out loud about this in the interview with Mark Leman Hill, and it just was uh, uncomfortable. And like, we both like wanted to push back on him as journalists, like, well, wait, what do you do about people who are rapists? And what do you like? Like, what do we do about like these are like really complicated conversations we were doing it sort of off the cuff, and it was really uncomfortable for us. I think in part because I think. Um, when I was having a conversation with Mark, I was very cognizant of the way it might sound to a lot of our listeners, that I was like brushing aside.
0: Mm.
1: Unworkable, right? That this is like an unworkable sort of universe of ideas that you're putting forward. And I think that's hard, right? Like that that's what makes it hard is that like we're trying to show all of our, our different audiences that like we're with them in a way that I don't know that. I honestly don't know if like other podcasts think about their audiences in that way, like or have to think about their audiences that way. Yeah. And I think we like definitely want to feel like we are all walking along this path together and thinking out loud all this stuff together. Uh,
2: you, you sort of made a reference when you were talking about the Confederate monuments guy. Mm-hmm. And I've heard it a couple other times uh, in Code Switch where people bring up what they believe are scientific issues to back up their position. Have you seen this very much? Is it is it a thing? It does motivate people or is it, you know, that we're all just basically ignorant of everything, and we're willing to admit our ignorance.
1: <laughs> I mean, y'all have seen this, right? Like, the, the, one of the weirdest things about anti-anti-racism, more like, um, is like this sort of like positioning of the people who are making these arguments. Like, they're they're the logical people, right? They're like making the most logical arguments, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, remember that Google thing that, that 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 newsletter, that letter that that dude at Google wrote, yeah, and was like about the, the evils of diversity and whatever, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's, like, full of, like, all sorts of pseudoscience, whatever. And it gives it this veneer of uh, impartiality and the objectivity, right? Like, sites, like, really dubious science, right? Like, really, like, uh, psychologists have been talking about, like, the problems with, with what he said. But there's a way in which that language, like, a language of masks, I think, like, a lot of really dangerous stuff. And I think because of, like, a lot of times, like, who the gatekeepers are in the conversations, like, that that language is really appealing to them, right? It feels dispassionate. And we had a comment section on Code Switch, that was the sort of posture that a lot of the were talking about, like, well, like the, the why are we even talking about race people? They, they often took that posture, right? Which I think is interesting, right? I mean, like, you see, like, someone like Jordan Peterson, who sort of very much does, does that sort of positioning, right? There's, like, I think a, a real desire to, like, give, like, a scientific legitimacy or intellectual legitimacy to some, like, Really old ideas, right? I mean, like uh, Jason of the white nationalist was on NPR a couple weeks ago. He literally, and this is like to me like the worst case scenario of the Trump Trump uh, era. But like, literally on Morning Edition, ranking different ethnic
2: groups. Yeah, I groups. was actually. I was actually screaming at the radio when I was listening to that. <laughs>
1: so, yeah. I, I want to say some more stuff right now, but I'm not. About to, <laughs> I should, I should step something back here. But, I mean, there's nothing new about scientific racism, right? The stuff he was doing, like, no. like Charles Murray was doing this in the 90s, right, in the early 90s, the 80s, he was doing it. Like, those ideas are, are things that are really deeply held. And I think it's like a part of that is like, a lot, I think a lot of that is cynical, but also I think that a lot of that is like fallout for like 100 plus years of like really shitty race science, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, like, like race pseudoscience, right? Like for a very long, time we were telling people that race is a real thing and then like over the last 25 30 years people people have becoming become much more fluent in the idea that race is a construction but like you don't unlearn the ways like that just doesn't like automatically flip off right Like people don't suddenly become like skeptical of the notion that race is like a concrete biological fact You can separate out from things right it's like a thing that people like are deeply in, have become deeply invested in and like you know we have laws codified around this stuff and like and it's funny you look at the laws they like don't make any sense right i mean but like, you look at all the sort of ways that like the, the parameters of race have changed scientifically which sort of speaks to like how flimsy the foundation is we did a episode on dna testing i mean even like even we were like sort of struggling with the like the not the science or not science of it you know what i mean like yes. we're like what does this mean like okay but well, what is this what is shereen was like okay so i'm five percent southern european like first of all what is southern european well, what does it mean like yeah. i got mine and it was like it was and it was almost like a, a ink lot right it was like it can mean yeah. whatever you wanted to be like you know what oh, i mean like i was like my father was from ghana and so like my thing came back and it said i was like 95 percent west african and i was like yeah i mean okay like i mean and then shereen's had like like she shereen had all these like these very fine demarcations, like and little, and she was like, "I don't know what to make of any of this." And I was like, "Do I need to find out who my great, great Irish ancestor?" You know what I mean? Just like so, it was just so messy, even for us, and we like are supposed to know better. You know what I mean?
0: So, in the class that I teach, we do a test like that, and we spend a whole bunch okay. of time deconstructing the results, and it's so what illuminating. Do what do people say? Um, white students are always bummed that they're not secretly Asian.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait not secretly asian why is that
0: yeah i I don't know but you know the the students who are of european descent tend to be disappointed that they don't have a secret ancestor from another place usually it's asian i don't know why that's the case so there's this whole fetishization of of difference that goes on we have to spend a lot of time talking about that and sort of like why is it okay to fetishize and to want to have some secret sort of racial alter ego in this one context, but not to want it in your everyday life context? And Absolutely. it's, yeah. I mean, it is, uh, talk about a hot button personal stuff, but it's, oh, it's, my God. Oh, oh, it's God. great. It's so illuminating. It's wonderful. And it's challenging every time.
2: Uh, when you tell students that actually we're all African, <laughs> all of us are African and the vast majority of our DNA is shared with everybody in Africa. And it just, like, they can't quite wrap their mind around it, but that is some of the most fun because you can see it in their eyes when their brains explode. Yeah. (laughs) Right.
1: I mean, I'm I'm curious about this. Like, I want to be something besides European thing. Yeah. Is that, like... Do you think that's, like, a generational thing? Do you think people, like... Maybe. ago May have been, like, I'm from Germany and it's Italy or whatever, and that's following me. Or do you think that's, like... Is that a response to, like, the browning of America? It it could be.
0: I mean, another thing that we talk about later on in the course is how in the past 20 years being biracial or multiracial has become aesthetically and in other ways very sort of like a, a fascination mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. young Americans. And so, you know, there's there's some good material that we use about, for example, biracial couples who get comments all the time about like oh it's so great that you're gonna get married because then you'll have kids and they'll be so beautiful because they'll be biracial and so maybe you're right yeah it might be it might be generational it could be even regional i'm so i'm going to be doing this for the first time in oregon this year and i'm really interested to see if and if so how people's responses differ
1: Pacific Northwest is a whole, whole different sort of like kettle of fish. I see oh, Oregon, man. which had official bands on black folks. Have been there for a long time. I
0: know. We're, so we're already um, throwing around ideas for at least one episode, if not many episodes that we're going to do on Oregon's history and how it came to be one of the mm-hmm. whitest and, and most racist free states ever to exist.
2: Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm really concerned with this notion of, um, Diversity just as a good all by itself, and in the sciences, especially the closer that you get to physics, there's less and less value placed on ethnic diversity. And in fact, the sciences can be really, really unfriendly places for people that consider themselves from a minority ethnicity. And so I'm wondering, like, what can be done? Like, what what can we do uh, as a as the academy? Uh, Mm -hmm. to make it so that the sciences, but the social sciences and the humanities and the fine arts too, can be more welcoming places.
0: Can I piggyback on that and add one more more nuance to the question, which is to point out that my discipline anthropology has Mm -hmm. both at various points in its history, been at the forefront of attempting to sort of prove and uphold scientific racism and now kind of do the opposite. And so a lot of, academic discussion and scholarly discussion that's coming out now about the effects of structural racism is in fact coming out of the social sciences, which are at the same time some of the whitest. That makes the question even more complex and urgent to me.
1: It is so fascinating. I mean, it feels like a lot of the, it sounds like a lot of the challenges that the Academy is facing. Um, it sounds like the, the challenges that, like, that newsrooms face, right? Um, like this, there's these ideas about like, objectivity. And neutrality especially when it comes to the hard sciences right like to the hard sciences even hard sciences feels like loaded to say right <laughs> yeah totally, yeah, totally. So, these ideas of like a rigor are assumed because of who is in those fields right like it's because those fields are so white and male that there's going to be like sort of dispassionate and more rigorous um, which is the same same way the newsrooms have operated, operated for a long time right anything that sort of like anything that sort of touches on identity for the longest time was considered like a, a deviation from, from this Platonic ideal of objectivity, which obviously is bullshit. A newsroom full of white dudes with college degrees is not like even like if we just I don't even know what demographic would that looks like for the country, right? But like even if you look at that, like it's probably like twenty percent of the country like fits into those categories, right? White male dudes with college degrees, like, I, but and yet like those people like get to establish the lens of like all these things, and I imagine like I mean you guys know this more than me, but I imagine that this is like sort of the same general basket. That like is is at Planet Academy, right? Is that what's happening there? Yeah, that's pretty true. Yeah. yeah. So what do we do? I mean all fix of Fix it. Come <laughs> on, Gene, fix it. All of the things that, I've been thinking a lot, just humor I'm thinking out loud here. I've been thinking a lot about like norms lately. Like um when we talk about like changing stuff, especially when it comes to like race and like structure. We often, like, focus, I think, a lot on, like, moving people's, like, like, the physics, particularly the physics of white people's souls, right? Like, we need to, like, get them to move on these things. And, like, and then once we've changed up minds, we can do this stuff. This is a guy Philip T. Goff, who's a psychologist, of, basically a psychologist of racism, but he like uh, works for the Center for Pleasing Equity, and he said to me once a long time ago, and I just like haven't I've been thinking about it a lot lately, because so, like the civil rights movement didn't like it obviously was talking in this language that was meant to like get people to move, but what it mostly did, like the way it was most effective was like change the norms around the person, right? It changed like the kind of behaviors that you are incentivized, it changed like the incentive structure for people, and so it became incredibly bad to be outwardly a racist person, right, and to say certain words, and to behave certain ways, right, at least for a little while, and those are very fragile, norms are very fragile as we're learning in the Trump era, they're very fragile <laughs> easily, yes. okay. um, it seems like there's been a sort of like very, just from like what my friends who are PhDs and stuff have talked about it seems like it's very sort of like, uh, we need more diversity, done, like you say it and you sort of like, maybe you hire one or two people for a couple departments, and you actually don't do anything to like, like make these spaces uh, make that a priority of these cases. like not like a, a third or a fourth order sort of like consideration, but like yeah, especially, like, institutions that are old. Like, these institutions were never meant for for people of color, right? They were never mm-hmm. meant for women, right? I mean, like, he's, like... I mean, every time we go to a university, like, it's always funny because you're, like, when did they admit their first black student or whatever? And it's always, like, way more recent than you would think, right? It's always, like, mm-hmm. in the 60s, right? You know, it's, like... And, like, what you're basically asking for in a lot of ways is, like, to undo... If these universities are really old, like I believe, or like, or even just like some of the big state schools, like they're basically asking them to undo like a century plus, two centuries plus of this orientation, and they have no incentive to do it. And I don't know, are there any institutions that have done a really good job of sort of centering like inclusion on campus or, or among academics, or is like is it, is every every place just like depressing? And
0: hmm.
1: I was reading something about MIT, and like the unique challenges it, it serves for like first-generation students of color, um, like, Black and Latinx kids, and it was, like, I was thinking, like, uh, there's probably, like, few places, like, in the, I have, I don't know, no shade to MIT, well, this is going to be some shade to MIT, but it seems like (laughs) the place that would be, like, the least amenable to, like, actually thinking about these things would be a place like MIT, where everyone would just, like, well, this is just about this, like, meritocratic like, you either cut it or you can't, right?
2: Sure. Um, we do yeah. technology. It yeah, is so, either right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah, right.
1: The code is either good or bad, or the, yeah. the math, Your equations are either good or bad. Yeah. Um, is it right or wrong? And, like, how do you? It seems like there's this big pipeline problem, like, to begin with. But then you get to, like, once people make it through the pipeline, if they've made it, like, they've buffeted by all these things and all these barriers to entry, and they get through the pipeline and they get to a university. You still ha- you still have to be the kind of person who has enough like emotional and psychic like wherewithal to like then do the professional dances that we have to do right yep. like yeah I mean so much of the stuff is like really big like the stuff that we'll fix is like it's like not remediating institutions like the university themselves but like actually like overhauling society I mean
2: like honestly like the I think of... there are good things that we can do but I think there are steps that we can't take that we're just not taking or at least we're not taking them in large measure so I think that like, you can make campus a place where you can see other people that look and talk and act like you represented in that space so i know this is my own personal hobby horse at the university of alabama right but we have buildings here that are named after clan leaders and some of the the most racist people that this country has produced that we have buildings named after right and statues of people like that too and it, it to me it seems like we that that right there, that seems like an easy fix. Just make it look more like people that actually go to school here. And that would be an easy one. The reason those names are still there is because it's not an easy fix, right? Oh yeah. Right. Yeah, it's like moving a mountain. Yeah, yeah It's right. It's so hard.
1: And it's also but necessary
2: but not sufficient. Yeah. You know,
1: right. It's all necessary but insufficient. Right.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's not sufficient. It's just like that that's the tiniest little thing that we could do and upset yeah. have hurt. you
1: know. And it speaks to like how hard some of the, the actual hard stuff is, right? If the easy stuff is hard as shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, right,
2: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Stuff,
1: it's like the, those are, these are layups, right? Like, if, if yeah, it should stuff, be. How yeah. you have a university, the biggest university in the state, like, that is like super, super black. Um, and I imagine I don't know what's the student body I University of like Alabama like. How what percentage of the population is black there? I'd say less than 20%. Yeah, it's I, think like 18,
0: I think like I think people of color is between 15 and 18%. Faculty of color is only about 6%. Yeah. So
1: I mean, oh my God. So if you're a, if you're a young if you're a student of color there, there's a really high the like really, really 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 serious chance that you would go matriculate four or four years should you finish right, yep. um, and never have a professor of color like, true. In, that, in that higher process right. Correct. Yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah, and I will also say that 6% is higher than a lot of places.
1: How do you... Because we know all this stuff about, like, the way this stuff matters in terms of, like, just being able to project out what your career might look like, right? Like, if you're a kid who is first generation from Birmingham going to the University of Alabama, and you want to be uh, a physicist, and you don't see, at any point, you don't see any other students of color, but you, you almost certainly won't see any... have any instructors, right, for people of color. Like, how do you then, like... Like the kind of imagination it would take to be like, I'm gonna do this even though I don't have anybody to function as a template for me. Like it's not a thing that's like scalable. Like I'm sure there's one or two people like, oh I can do this and it doesn't matter. But for a lot of people it's like I need to actually what would it what could it what, what could I look like as a black person who's a physicist, right? Like what would that there's always some person who like manages to end up in those spaces without having that black instructor or the Latinx instructor or the other Asian American instructor. But that's not a scalable thing. That's like not a workable
2: thing. Like all oh, those people like those people are just you know Yeah, there there's one Neil deGrasse Tyson. And that's right exactly is. who he is, because that's who he is. And he and talked Coach about how
1: works at the University of Texas, right? Like Yeah, absolutely. We count we were counting them up. Like with people who had PhDs in astronomy and physics. We got to like forty five. In the entire United States, right? And it was just this weird thing that was happening, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, the most famous astrophysicist in America right now. Oh. And he's also a unicorn like there's no you know what i mean like there's no and, and he's talked about like what it was like to be at the university of texas and like being stopped by like campus security and all this stuff like that and he was like i think he was an athlete or at least you know so like he like was big and he was walking around with like his afro and like he just like looked out of place and he got stopped all the time and it's like it's both important that he exists in the like in people's like in the in the sort of, so, so people can imagine that you know the most famous physicist astrophysicist in america is the black dude but also like it probably would be much more impactful if there were just a bunch of astrophysicists in, on campuses all the time, you know, as, as okay. to be mentors other academics, right. To, to be mentor, mentors to students, like, I don't
2: know.
0: Maybe we should ask a question about Alabama since you've been here recently
2: or been, been there recently. Were people nice to you at least? Were oh, they well, nice to you. It was Okay. Really
1: nice. And so like, I should say, like, I'm a city, but, like I'm a Yankee Yankee, like in Philadelphia, like, yeah, yeah. And so, like, and I, a bunch of my really good friends are from the South, but, like, I had never spent a ton of time there. And the first time I was in Alabama was a couple years ago. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, who um, writes about um, school segregation and housing segregation, um, she was doing, she had done a bunch of reporting on Central High School. Yeah. Um, it's Tuscaloosa right here. Yeah, I teach that article. Here, yeah. yeah. Just, it was, like, a crazy, like, the whole story that was, like, bananas to me, like, yep. um, and it was it was really interesting, like, yeah. the high school had found, like, this, like, sweet spot where, and it shows how, like, fragile all these things are, right? Like, which it was an integrated high school. That was a really well-performing high school academically. And it had, like, the best football team of the state. And it was a place everyone wanted to go to. And it also required, like, it takes so much social energy to keep that in place, especially in a place where, like, all the incentives, again, are, like, to not do that, right? To not yeah. have this. And so it fell apart. And so um, the first time I was in Alabama was, oh, I guess it was like three or four years ago. Nicole and I have been friends ever since. And I remember like the way race sort of felt different down there to me. This is this is going to sound weird, but it felt like black people and white people were like up against each other in a different way, you know, than they were in the North. Like this kid, I remember he was a kid. I don't think he went to the University of Alabama. It was like a scrawny little white kid with a, like, a hat on and he drove us to this barbecue spot that was like in the cut somewhere. Um, and it was like a smoker smoker place, and he was like, "I gotta take you to the barbecue place." And it was like a like a black owned, like a family barbecue spot that was like on a hill, like in the middle of nowhere.
0: Archibalds, um, maybe was you it went to in...
2: Archibalds. It was Archibalds. It was like they gave you like white bread and yeah. it's Archibalds, man. That's the best rib place in the United States of America. It is
1: actually. <laughs> it was crazy, and I was like, "Well, first of all, this is amazing." Yeah. yeah. Second of all. There was something about that that felt like he felt really casual about it. Like, oh, this this is place I'm, this food is good. I'm going to go here. And I feel like even in a place like New York where I spent like 10 years, I felt like the, that was like the kind of white people who would do that or the kind of people who like, you know, the pioneers, right? Like the people who like move oh. into neighborhoods like, oh, I know this great little spot. But it wasn't like as a matter of course, like this, this like white dude in the pickup truck. Like yeah. we're not just like I'm going to go to get this good food. Also, it it also struck me like that there might actually be like a language of interaction between white folks and black folks because in the south that doesn't exist in the north because white folks and black folks folks in the south have had these very obviously very contentious fucked up ways for a long time. But they like had maybe had developed some sort of like rules, so you know, some some social rules of engagement around this stuff. You know what I mean? That don't yeah. in the south like. In a, in a place like New York City or Detroit or like all places that, like, became, like, are, like, deeply segregated in ways that were never, like, codified in the same ways, right? Like, never, like, explicitly codified. When I was in Birmingham this last time, I, was, I remember being like, oh, everyone here is really nice, which is the thing, again, that doesn't happen in New York, right? I mean, I think yeah. did you said that on the stage. It's like, oh, people say hi to you, and they talk to you, sure. <laughs> right? Everyone, <laughs> like, everyone was really, really nice, and I sort of, like... And I was most cognizant of, like, the sort of racial dynamics still exist. Like, the, the people that, like, not, not learned to live together, that's not what I want to say, that's, like, too much. But, like, but they at least learn how to, like, talk to each other mm. for, like, the more mundane interactions, right? Like, in a really really sort of, like, in a way that, like, does not happen in, like, on the East Coast, right? I mean, that Starbucks thing happened in Philadelphia, my whole town. Like, yeah. in part, like, that is the way that their spaces. And this happens everywhere, but, like, it's, like, a, it's much more... And these the people in the north though tend to think of themselves as good folks, right? Like and so they're like, oh, I'm not doing this thing by sticking the cops on you, right? Um, yeah. I'm not. I'm not doing a bad thing. This is just. I. But like, I imagine the world. I don't know. This is too far. But I was, It seemed like in the south there might actually be a conversation between the latest the Starbucks and the black folks that yeah. might have precluded all the shit that happened, even as like the same structures of the same racial hierarchy, and the same disparities in power exist. Birmingham was like just a weird place to be because like, one people were like, oh wait. It was a steel town. I was like, wait, Birmingham? Like, I'm like, I'm from Pennsylvania. So I'm like, oh, steel from Bethlehem. It's from Pittsburgh. Yeah. I'm like, oh, no, Birmingham was the industrial capital of the South. I'm like, what? And they were like, oh, it didn't exist during the Civil War. I was like, wait, what? Like, I just didn't know yeah. any of that. I was like, why is there no river in this town? They're like, oh, they didn't need it because there was no, you know, it wasn't. It's just a fascinating place. The food was so good. Uh, when I came back, my fiance was like, yo, like, I was Birmingham. I was like, we're going back. As soon as we get a, a long weekend, we got to go back there. I just thought it was like, it was beautiful and it felt like we Shireen and I did a story in West Virginia a couple years ago and it reminded me hmm. a lot of that, like it was mountainous. And I don't know what I was expecting Alabama to look like. I didn't think I expected Birmingham to look like that, like to be sort of like hilly and we went to, the, we went to like uh was it Red Mountain? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Spent a morning up there, um, doing some recording and it was just like it was just like pristine and like idyllic and like and of course like had this crazy racial history of like Labor organize, organizing, like in violence and whatever, but it was like amazing. Like I was like, oh, this place is fascinating, and I want to come back here and walk around and like sort of like sit in it for a while, you know. I remember when we were driving down to, to Charlottesville, to Richmond actually, uh, once like one of our early dates, my my fiance and I, and like the first, there's this gigantic Confederate flag, like on, the, I mean like, giant, I mean, like a fifty feet. It's like on some guy's farm, mm-hmm. but his farm is next right to the highway, and he like, positioned it so it blows, it blows like, over the the highways are going south. Like I'm like, oh, and I'll turn to my uh, my partner who was who's Indian, like where the fuck are we going? <laughs> like, yeah. like 45 minutes outside of DC and like there's like yeah. flags. And all the people of color I knew who grew up in the South, when I was told them all this, they're like, Man, they were like, listen, like you just it was it was so weird because I was like, yo, like this is not I don't know what I'm about to get into it's like, man, uh my friend was saying like when they were young, they had rolled up to like a barbecue spot and it was a confederate flag, like on the barbecue spot. Um, and they're like, I don't know if I feel okay going here. And their father, like an old black man, was like, Man, we're gonna get this barbecue. We're gonna eat this <laughs> barbecue. I'm gonna go get in the car. Like, it was like, they were like not bothered by it. And I was like, I don't understand. And it's like, this. they just had to like learn how to like navigate, you know, just like, uh, eh, what you gonna do? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So much of like my family's own history is, is tied up in those regions and I'd like wanna go there, you know? Anyway, sorry, talk to you more. We're, we're. I, I wish Freak could have been here though. I mean, she like, Yeah. she's so like, she, she has like, her experiences are so different from mine, right? And, like, one of the things that happens on our podcast a lot is that she, like, very much pushes us to, like, try to get out of the black-white binary and stuff, you know? Because, like, she's not the binary she lives in, you know? Yeah. Other than something that's, like, not the, the set of problems she's concerned with. She, like, pushes me on a lot of stuff. Her, her husband is a civil rights attorney. And so, like, they, like, in this world, we like, in a very real way, they're, like, they're, trying to help people with their immigration stuff. And, like, yeah. her, her husband was like working on one of the, uh, the Muslim band, uh stuff and I think he was just, like really dejected about it and like this mm-hmm. stuff is like very front of mind for all this time because like she literally lives in it
0: well that would have been awesome um, we're trying to do a bit of that on the podcast with looking at the international stuff you know looking at India and looking at Brazil as systems where racial and caste and also racial caste systems are profoundly Im- implicated in the social fabric but where it's not a binary and how that looks right. different and you know there's this whole like Oh well, if it's not a binary system, it's like a rainbow, and everyone's so accepting, and we're like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. <laughs> and point. so I would, I would love to have been able to talk to her about that a little bit too. That would have been awesome.
1: You know, like when, we, when I was growing up, the the way that it was always playing, like there's black people, and there's white people, and then everyone else is like on some continuum in between. And of course, it's like not it's, right. That's not the way it works, right? Um, but it still like is that binary is so reinforced so much all the time when we talk about stuff.
0: So even think, kind uh, of present uh, in census categories. I mean, it's everywhere.
1: Actually, Hansi, Wong, just as an aside, uh, Hansi, who was on our team, who I love, Hansi, Hansi was on, Um, uh, he is now covering the census right now. And so he's like rabbit hole on like the citizenship question. Oh, nice. So he, he came over for dinner the other day and he was telling me about this story. And this is like, I'm like, this has to be a coaster story. There's this guy who was facing himself an environmentalist, like in the 60s and 70s. Right? Um, and he, his whole big thing was like, I remember seeing this a little bit when I was in, like, middle school, but, like, one of the... Everyone thought the big environmental challenge, the ecological challenge for the world was going to be, like, overpopulation. Like, there was going to oh, be a... The, the, the population you know, bomb. Yeah. population bomb, right? Yeah. Uh, and so this is, like, his thing. Like, oh, my God, this is a, a, a terrible thing, and we need to, like... But, like, his politics, this guy, Canton Tanton, I forget his name, like, started to, His politics started to like, shift very slowly over to, like, anti-immigration. He was like, well, why do we need... Um. Why does America need immigrants to begin with, right? Like, and he started to sort of, like, fund these sort of, like, weird take the citizenship, uh, add a citizenship question to the census form. Like, he started these weird questions to do that. And they would just, like, lose. And I think he'd, like, try to start a court case to do this. And then, like, it would die. And he'd, like, fund sort of campaigns to do it. It was very, very fringy. And then, like, he sort of he founded this group called FAIR, just, uh, oh yeah he's a fair guy yeah yeah and, then, and, and now like that question like is literally like on yeah. like the thing that's like actually being debated right now and it's a very likely yeah. census, mm-hmm. and like it's just fascinating to watch that dude move that question from like the fringes totally of the like this is right to like the center of our politics like literally yep. like and now we have this like all this stuff on the census like and there, i think it's so funny because you talk to the census folks. They're like so like thoughtful about this stuff. They're like, yo, like we want people to like we want them to be we want this to be as messy as possible. Like in a lot of ways, right? I mean, we want to quantify it, so we don't want to be that messy. But we want people to say like, I'm Bengali. Like if uh, if a, yeah. several thousand people answer that on the census, then we have like data that we can do stuff with. We want people to be as specific as possible. I mean, they're thinking very thoughtfully about getting people to represent themselves as accurately as possible. And then you have this other universe of people who are like, we need to add this question in because. We want to scare the fuck out of people, right? Yeah. we want to scare the fuck out of people. And we oh it's just it's so it seems so literal that like our questions about race are literally wrapped up in this question about race, you know. Totally. Um, yeah. Our see uh, I'll get i out of your way, but Keith Woods, our um our old editor on Coast, which we so all love, who's like a mentor to all of us, he's the VP of diversity. Um he's just a great editor of mine, but also just like a very sage. He's like a social worker so he can like talk us off of legends And he's like he's like yeah. a very, a very good listener, a very good sort of like de-escalator. Cool. Um but Keith always does this thing where he talks about like in our coverage, right? Not just Coaches' coverage, but when he talks about sort of the way the NPR covers stuff or the way that when people describe someone as like a black person, or like, or even when the police do that, and he's like, okay, I want you. This, what does a black person look like, right? And then everyone like it's just like this weird shorthand, right? But like, is that Beyonce? Is that Whoopi Goldberg? Is it is it you know is it you know Tiana Paris? Like those people look anything alike, right? And it's just like the idea that you would like give it to someone and be like a census taker in 1890 to be like walking around and be like, oh, this person looks like an actor. like, what? Like, cause so many people, there's so many white people who like, if I didn't know, if they I not have any context around them, I'd be like, oh, that person is a brown person, and I'm like, oh, no, person just who was the guy from Georgia the libertarian candidate guy Bob Barr he looks like Jeremiah Wright you know what I mean he looks like Jeremiah Wright's brother it's just like and it doesn't even matter
2: if he's like his lived experiences whatever whatever I'm sorry rabbit hole (laughs) oh that's great that's great yeah well thank you for stopping me
0: Thank you Gene, so much for talking to us. This has been
2: amazing, and uh, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, so I'm yep. super excited that you were willing to talk to us today. We, I, you know, I so much appreciate uh, what you and Shreen and the whole team do at CodeSwitch. I think it's just amazing, and all the blessings on you. I hope that this goes for until you do something even bigger okay. someday.
1: Thank you so much yeah. for listening to us. I appreciate that. Thank you much for talking to me today.
0: Oh, Thank absolutely. You. Thank you. It's been awesome. All
1: right. Be easy. I'll talk to you all soon. All right. Bye. Take care.
0: All right, listeners, we hope you enjoyed that. I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist, and I'll be back next time with Jim and Eric. And this has been another episode of Speaking of Race.